Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. Coming up on the podcast, Richard Restat, the highly respected professor of neurology, joins us to discuss his latest book, How to Prevent Dementia. It might not be a topic that everyone is immediately thinking about today, but as time progresses, there are few families left untouched by the challenges of this condition. According to the WHO, Alzheimer's, a form of dementia, ranks as the seventh leading cause of death globally. Joining Restack in conversation today is Alex Wilkins, news reporter for The New Scientist. Let's join Alex now with more. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Restack, Clinical Professor of Neurology at George Washington University and previously the President of the American Neuropsychiatric Association. He has lectured on the brain and behaviour at the Pentagon and NASA and written more than 20 books on the human brain. His new book, which we'll be discussing the themes of today, is How to Prevent Dementia, An Expert's Guide to Long-Term Brain Health. Richard, welcome to the show. I'm I'm very much excited to speak with you uh, about the book. Pleasure to be here to speak with you, Alex. Well, I, I really enjoyed reading the book and learned a great deal about dementia and memory and, and lots of things that I thought I knew quite well, um, but, but you really packed a lot in there. Um, but I wanted to start with a clarification that listeners might not necessarily understand or realise. Um, so dementia is often synonymous and kind of mentioned in the same breath with Alzheimer's disease but they're not actually one and the same. And I was wondering if we could just start off with maybe explaining the difference a bit about what dementia refers to, what Alzheimer's refers to. Well, dementia is an overall umbrella term to cover all different types of dementia. Alzheimer's is one of them and the most common, but there are four or five others that are characteristic of degenerative brain disease. So when you talk about dementia, you have to be more specific if you want to say which particular um, disease is it? Is it Alzheimer's? Is it frontal temporal dementia? Which is it? Right. So going forward, I I might sometimes kind of refer to Alzheimer's in this conversation, but I guess a lot of the things that we talk about as it applies to Alzheimer's could also apply to other forms of dementia. Obviously, there are lots of caveats and exceptions there, as you said, kind of uh, frontal temporal dementia, or if you have dementia from repetitive brain injury, then there might be some differences there. But a lot of the kind of um, preventative causes that you go into in the book kind of apply across different forms of dementia it, sometimes. It, would you say that's correct? Yes, I, th- I think that's correct. We have different types of dementia, different causes. Some of them are due to trauma, as you pointed out, traumatic brain injury. That's not a degenerative disease. Most of the dementias that we usually talk about are de- degenerative brain diseases, Alzheimer's, frontal temporal dementia, Lewy body, etc. And these are parts that uh, the final clinical result 
may be very similar. For instance, we often talk about Alzheimer's as being characterized by loss of memory and decreasing memory power. That's true. In most cases, that's true, but it doesn't have to be. People with Alzheimer's could present with psychiatric features, as did the original patient that was described by Eloi uh, Alzheimer in the 19th century. This was one who had jealousy about her husband and was uh, agitated and things like that. It wasn't until later that the memory part of it came up. One thing that kind of struck me while reading the book um, is how dementia and, and Alzheimer's itself uh, can almost be thought of as cancer is thought of as the body, but but kind of for the brain, not not in terms of its mode or of action or its symptoms, but kind of in terms of how we're beginning to think about the disease. It's increasingly not seen as one thing, but has a wide range of outcomes, as, as you said there, and has been really quite difficult to treat. And there's been a really large evolution in our thinking about the disease since it was first discovered by Alois Alzheimer's, as you mentioned. Um, and I'd really like to know how your own thinking about dementia and Alzheimer's has evolved over time. You, you've been working clinically for quite a long time now, and you have a very long and distinguished career. Um, how has your thinking changed about Alzheimer's and dementia? Well, I started off as a psychiatrist, and uh, we use the term thinking disorder frequently, usually in reference to uh, schizophrenia. The term thinking disorder is not used as much by neurologists. I now pr practice principally neurology or a certain area of it called neuropsychiatry. And uh, these uh, people have uh, disorders which have to do primarily with thinking. We talked a moment ago about memory, about uh, cognition in areas like thinking, abstraction, uh, things like that, that uh, can be affected by the um, disease, any of these diseases. Now, the, the key to remember is that we all have these problems. Everybody has its occasions. They can't come up with a name. They can't come up with a concept. Uh, they get lost when they go into unfamiliar places. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that does not mean necessarily that anybody has a uh, suboptimal brain. So you just have to look for the specific giveaways that may indicate that someone's had uh, uh, gone beyond the uh, acceptable normal. Right. And you also talk in the book about how there's this fundamental difficulty in understanding what might cause Alzheimer's or dementia and what might just be a kind of correlation and what, what might be a factor that is also associated with it. And, and you go into quite a bit of detail on explaining the difference between causation and correlation, which unless you're kind of been exposed to science, you might not be so familiar with. Um, but you go into it for good reason. And I was wondering if you could just explain a bit about why correlation and causation is important, why causation is quite a difficult thing to find and, and how it kind of relates to dementia. Well, I use the example of falling down the stairs. Someone loses their balance and falls down the stairs and they fracture one bone in their back. Not, not so seriously that they're going to be paralyzed or anything, but they have a fracture. So you can say that the fall down the stairs caused the fracture. But when you go into the causes of why they fell in the first place, there's no one reason. There's a correlation of various uh, contributors to the fall. Maybe they were uh, uh, not quite awake. Uh, maybe they were trying to do too many things at once, carrying uh, several packages. Uh, maybe they were on the effect of medications that they were taking. Uh, there's even the possibility they might have had a drink or two and all these things will add to it. So you can't say that uh, drinking causes falling downstairs or that um, carrying 
packages causes falling downstairs or taking medications. But all of these are correlations. They're not causes. So this is the same thing that holds when we try to say what causes Alzheimer's. We really don't know. I mean, we know that it's correlated with plaques and tangles and different microscopic changes in the brain, but we don't know whether they're the cause of the disease or whether they're just a, uh, uh, something that comes about as a result of the real cause, which could be something like inflammation. Right. And I realize this might be kind of the million dollar question, but why is it so hard to pin down the, the cause of Alzheimer's? I mean, with other diseases, we've kind of managed to come up with um, some very simple therapies, some very complicated therapies, but it seems with Alzheimer's, we're, we're still kind of fumbling around in the dark. I just, is it because it's in the brain? Um, why, why do you think it is so hard to find a cause or, or causes for Alzheimer's? Well, we don't want to exaggerate the uh, um, knowledge that we have about other diseases. Nobody has an exact explanation for why people develop hypertension or diabetes or anything. We, you know, we can go down and look at the pancreas and the putting out of insulin and it's not as efficient and so forth. But what causes that? Uh, everything essentially, I think, is moving towards uh, genetic explanations. And I think that the dementias are going to be distributed in our, according to our understanding of the uh, genetics. It's already started. For instance, the people who develop Alzheimer's are usually older people, certainly over 50. But there are cases of people in their 20s and 30s that have developed it. Now, that's a very unusual uh, onset of dementia that's almost always inherited. So that's a, if you see that in a family, you'll see it in each generation that one or more people develop dementia at an early uh, stage, Alzheimer's at an early stage. So there's, there's this thing that has to be kept in mind, that we don't really understand a lot of diseases. Now, you also talked about treatment. You don't have to understand a disease to treat it. Um, let me give you an example. A do doctor that I know well, one of my teachers, was um, seeing people for uh, migraine headaches. And uh, one day, a patient came in and said, you know, since I've been put on this particular medicine for my blood pressure, my migraines are better. And then soon another patient came in and said the same thing. And he said, well, what medicine is this you're using? And it was propranolol, so a beta blocker. So he then thought, well, it would be interesting to see how that affects a migrador who doesn't have high blood pressure. And that's how he came up with this treatment for migraine. Now, what does this do? Why does it affect the migraine? We don't really know. We're not sure. It's empirical. Much of medicine is much more empirical, which means it's sort of serendipitous how we find out how things, um, lithium, for instance, for treatment in bipolar disorder was just discovered by accident, just noticed by certain people who go to take the waters, the cures of the spas in the 19th century tended to uh, moderate their, their, their uh, affect, their stream of thought, or pretty much the way they felt from day to day, good humor, bad humor, and it improved their humor. So that began the treatment of, uh, of uh, lithium, using lithium for bipolar disorder. So that's, no one understands why that helps, but it does. So if we think of dementias and Alzheimer's as something that's, you know, it's on a continuum from the way you and I are functioning right now, all the way up to the most severe case of dementia, there's a continuum there. There's a fear of it, 
You may be afraid of it. I may be afraid of it. We don't admit these continua, but they're there. And if you look for them, you find them. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, uh, having said that uh, it's difficult to kind of identify causes and, and correlations, um, as you say, it, it doesn't necessarily matter and you can treat things without knowing the cause. And we do seem to know a fair few things that appear to kind of decrease our risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, one thing I was really surprised to read about was tea or coffee consumption can significantly lower your risk. And as a non-caffeine consumer, I kind of made me reconsider. Um, but there are others that people might surprise. There are others that might surprise people too. Um, could you give us like a, a whistle-stop tour of um, things that people could do to maybe decrease their risk of dementia and Alzheimer's? Well, first of all, they should get their hearing tested. That sounds like a very... Uh, but that's a... If you go around the world, not just the developed countries, like England and the United States, but that around the world, loss of hearing or decreased hearing is the premier cause of dementia because it isolates people from other people and they then become you know, unable to communicate, so to speak, and unable to understand things. That's the first thing. So then after that, and of course, keeping a good health, keeping good diet, uh, these are important things, exercising and all these things. But I, I concentrate in my book on things that you don't think about as much and haven't been in other books. Um, you know, what, the, what are the personality traits, for instance, that you have in people? So about 20 years ago, I selected some people who were contributing and continuing to be contributors in their field when they were in their 80s. So it wasn't just that they contributed and accomplished things when they were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but they continued to be, uh, one of them was a Nobel Prize winning author, the other was a humorist. And I asked them about what it is that they would say themselves keeps their mind uh, in, in, uh, sort of uh, sharp. And they said, first of all, it was curiosity. You have to maintain a curiosity about other people and events. And secondly, you have to have energy. Try to do things to increase your energy levels. So that, uh, and then keeping yourself busy so you're not, uh, you know, sort of just filling time. Um, regular exercise, that's also important. But um, the uh, education, now the education is something, say, well, I can't go back to school. I finished school. So uh, what do I do now? We're talking about education, self education, or communal education. And you can often combine these things. For instance, another area is keeping uh, social obligation, or we shouldn't say obligations, interactions, socialization intact. But you know, some people aren't very social. They're kind of, you know, loners all their lives. And it's hard for them to sort of go out and go to a party. They never could. So what I say to them is, what are some of your interests? You're, well, I'm interested in pens or I'm interested in watches or whatever. And I say, is there any, are there any clubs in the city where you live that have this thing? Where, oh, yeah, there's a pen club in Washington. Well, why don't you look into it and join it? So they join that and then it, it fulfills a lot of characteristics that will keep them sharp. Their curiosity, they will be forced to interact with other people and they want to because they're talking about a common object of interest. So this is the other thing I mentioned in the book about the, about the magnificent obsession. Get really interested in something and then that will bring you into contact with other people, socialization. Uh, another one is eating clubs. I think you have them in, in England. We have 
here to a lesser extent, where people get together and they either go out to eat in a restaurant or they, they take turns uh, having people in and serving. Uh, then have topics. Some of them could be set around a book. Some of them could be set around a certain topic. And uh, this gets people out of themselves, gets them energized, gets them uh, busy. Uh, and uh, that, that's the kind of thing that I, I suggest in the book. A lot of the ideas that you speak about seem to tie into this idea of a cognitive reserve, which you also talk about. And our listeners might not be familiar with a cognitive reserve. And I was wondering if you could kind of sketch out what a cognitive reserve is and, and how it kind of relates to dementia. Well, let's take someone who is um, a wealthy man, wealthy person, has a lot of money, and his beach house is destroyed by a storm. Well, he just gets on a private plane and flies back to New York, wherever he lives, because you know it's, he's got several houses and all that. So he has what we call financial reserve. Another person whose beach house is destroyed, that may be their only house, or it's certainly a part of their economic well-being and their portfolio, so to speak, so they're devastated by it. So the same thing can be done about the intellect. The more that you've built up, the more knowledge that you have, the more cognitive uh, insults you can uh, take. And uh, so that uh, if you're starting on your way to Alzheimer's, it'll take a lot longer before you get there because of this cognitive reserve. So the cognitive reserve, think of it as like financial reserve, and it has to be something that you are interested in. I give an example in the book of a man who, uh, I was on a trip to Egypt, and I was struck with the fact that there was one of the uh, uh, participants there, it was only 10 of us, who was very much taken up with uh, Egyptology and knew a lot about it. And he was a different person because as he called it himself, he was. He said, I'm strictly blue collar, and he would make a, a joke out of it because everybody else was a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. And I said, so I was curious about him to start with. And I said, well, how did all this begin? And he said, well, I remember when I was in school taking uh, uh, Egypt uh, study, when the teacher talking about Egypt, I became very interested in it. And I've retained that interest my whole life. I've taken courses, I've read books and all this. As a result, he knew much as, uh, about the Egypt as the one teaching the uh, is teaching us all. So that was a magnificent obsession. And you know, it doesn't have to be intellectual. It doesn't have to be a study. It could be taking up uh, carpentry, if uh, your life has been that of a lawyer or something. But uh, maybe there's somebody in the family when you were a kid was pretty good with their hands in terms of making furniture might be something you might want to investigate as long as you're careful and you don't get hurt with uh, saws and things like that. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think my hobbies definitely tend towards the less dangerous side of things, but maybe I'll bear that in mind for future explorations. Um, One aspect of cognitive reserve that I find really interesting, and I know you do too, because one of your previous books was on memory, um, is is how memory kind of relates to the reserve and and how it relates to dementia. I, I have a bit of a personal obsession with memory because I find that mine doesn't always work how I'd like it to. I can uh, remember specific events and places, but when kind of asked to remember lyrics or quotes or exact um, extractions from that event, I struggle. I know other people can kind of name lyrics perfectly and, and say quotes kind of off the top of their head. Um, and it really seems to differ from person to person and, and over a life as well. Um, it, it seems that memory is really closely tied. So I'll, I'll just say that bit again. It seems to me that memory is really closely tied to Alzheimer's, um, both in the way that Alzheimer's affects the brain, but also possibly and excitingly kind of the other way around and that you can help improve your prognosis by working on your memory. Um, I I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what we know about the relationship between memory and dementia and and, and why they might be so closely linked. Well, first of all, I've never met anyone uh, who had a normal memory who had dementia. So we can start with that as a principle, that uh, normal memory guarantees pretty much you don't have dementia. Um, Parts of memory are very much uh, associated with normal and even extra normal mental functioning, what is called working memory. Working memory is when you take a list, like take a list of prime ministers, for instance, and list them, how far back can you go? And then you list them in your mind. You're not writing anything down. And then when you finally have them all down, write them so that you can check yourself and then review them in your mind alphabetically. 
So you put just the Tories or just the, the you know, that, that way. And then you do it with one's name, maybe one syllable, two syllable, three syllable, all these various things. And of course, you can check yourself against the, the list. Now, speaking of lists, um, we, we live in an age in which memory is imperiled by uh, cell phones, for one thing. Uh, we tend to uh, check everything through electronics. And the real key to maintaining your memory is to use the electronics, the cell phone, as uh, the uh, thing that you're going to uh, test yourself against, so to speak. In other words, if you're making up a grocery list, it's fine to put it on your cell phone. When you get to the store, it's there. That means you're not going to forget anything. But what you want to do is try to remember everything without looking at the cell phone. Only when you're at the very end of your shopping, you want to look and see if you've forgotten anything. So it's a matter of what's called working memory. Uh, now, the other thing about memory that I want to emphasize is that memory has to be a picture. If you want to remember something, it has to be something that rhymes with something else. Uh, it's a picture, whatever it may be. Um, because we brain, our normal brain doesn't function in terms of um, uh, learning something. If it's just language, if it's just letters and words and sentences, we had to learn to do that. When we were babies and young children, we couldn't, couldn't read. We were illiterate, but we could still see. We saw everything. We recognized there's a tree, there's my pet, all this. So what you want to do is transfer verbal language concepts into pictures. Now, here's an easy way to do it. Um, if, if you walk during the day at any particular path, uh, try to find a, an area where you walk fairly regularly. Pick out 10 spots and memorize them. So it can do a mental journey, walk on it. Like for instance, my own case, I have my, my house, the local library, uh, a coffee shop, liquor store, Georgetown University Medical School, Georgetown University itself, a restaurant called Cafe Milano. We have uh, the uh, Key Bridge, and then we have the Iwo Jima Memorial, and then we have Reagan's Airport. So those ten, uh, those things form the basis on which you put the memory objects that you want. So that if you're trying to uh, remember when you go to the store, that you want cereal, well, then in my case, I would just picture my house as a big cereal box with cereal coming out of the top. If the next thing was eggs, when I walked to the next spot, my mind, the library, I wouldn't see books in there. I would see eggs on the shelf, okay? So that you just run all these down. If I want ketchup, when I get to the uh, Georgetown University uh, entrance, I'll see all the students coming out wading in knee-deep ketchup. So that reminds me. So then when I get to the store, I just go through all that and I'll get them all. And when you do it that way, you can also do it backwards. But the key is to learn this particular event and this particular sequence. It doesn't take long. It's things you see every day. And then as you can remember those things, you put the item that you want to remember on that in some ridiculous way, something that is amusing or bizarre or surreal. Uh, for instance, the ideas I just mentioned of going, uh, looking in a window at a library and seeing eggs there. Well, that's kind of odd. Or going to the uh, 
front of Georgetown University and seeing it all catch flowing all over the streets, people walking through it. So that type of thing is going to really get your memory going. And it's, a, it's, it's worth doing because it's what I think the single most important part of fending off uh, Alzheimer's and dementia is uh, memory. You mentioned something in your answer then when you were talking about kind of memory being imperiled by electronic devices. And as someone who's kind of grown up with social media and, and devices being everywhere, it, it's something that has always kind of concerned me. Um, something I think many younger listeners might be interested to ask and, and wonder about is whether phone use might be something that can um, possibly affect our, our future capacity to develop dementia or, or Alzheimer's. Um, I, I know it's not an uncommon experience to kind of mindlessly be scrolling through social media and or your, your platform of choice and, and feel afterwards like your memory has been temporarily kind of damaged or, or, or destroyed. And anecdotally, I've heard reports from um, people using TikTok, the kind of video social media platform, that it's harmed their short-term memory. Um, I was wondering, do you think it's too soon to say whether these societal changes towards social media use could be a risk factor? Or, or do you think, given what we know about the importance of improving brain function, that that might actually be a problem? Well, I think it's two-edged sword. I think you can use these cell phones and things like that to enhance your cognitive functioning. I mean, at any time, if you're trying to think of a concept, you can check it out. We can look it up and see, oh, yeah, who was in that movie? I think it was a certain actor, but you're not sure. So you just can bring this thing up and find out immediately. But the key, again, is to use the cell phone, to use the electronics as the, the standard against you're comparing your memory, not the other way around, where you say, well, I'm not sure who it was. Let me just look it up. Well, the, the, I always say to the patients and people that do this, say, well, Try to figure out for yourself first. Well, I have no idea who it is. Well, then guess. And you'd be surprised how many times the guesses are correct because they lie outside of conscious awareness, which is another kind of memory, tacit. Um, then, of course, we have the procedural memory, which we learn to do things such that what we learn initially is effortful, but then as time goes on, there's no effort to it at all. Just do it uh, unconsciously, so to speak. You're clearly a very productive writer and author and, and neurologist as well. Um, and, and from what you say in the book, you often try these recommendations that you propose on yourself, like eating well or exercising your memory. Um, and, and you also suggest at one point that reading books can also help you build your cognitive reserve. But it, it struck me while, while reading this that writing a book is also a, a really good way to help keep your mind supple and build your memory. And I, I wondered whether you could recommend writing possibly something shorter than, than a complete book, or something that might help ease cognitive decline. Have you found it like a, a, a helpful exercise? Well, kudos to you, Alex, because that's exactly right. And uh, I feel that uh, that is one of the things that uh, keeps me cognitively intact. I mean, writing a book is not an easy thing. Um, so you have to organize a lot of material. You see, it's the frontal lobes of the brain in which they have things like executive function, uh, things having to do with uh, uh, abstraction, concentration, things like that, that as one ages, they begin to atrophy a little bit. So they're not as easy to do. Um, 
However, writing a book, as you just mentioned, is the uh, uh, counter factor to that. I mean, you, you have to be organizing things, focusing, uh, uh, taking out extraneous things, all this. So yes, in, in answer to your very good question, uh, I think it's uh, very f helpful. The, the nature of kind of dementia and, and Alzheimer's can be very um, depressing and, and scary. And I think it kind of, that, that loss of control aspect is something that, that scares a lot of people. But I found reading your book that there was also a lot of hope uh, in there as well and, and uh, an ability for people to kind of take agency and, and control over the disease for themselves. Um, and I wanted to ask you how much you thought there was a role for kind of personal agency in dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's? Well, I think when you think about some of the uh, losses that people with Alzheimer's have, you can definitely combat that by themselves and the people around them. Loss of identity is a big thing. You begin to feel there's no linkage between their identity before and then. Always feeling uh, uh, loss of autonomy, uh, loss of the sense of... Uh, of, of agency, in other words, as being the person who does the various things. Um, when you interact with someone who begins to have problems with their uh, cognition, it's important that they be treated a certain way. Uh, in other words, don't argue with people if they have some views that are uh, not uh, normal and more characteristic of, of a dementia. Um, if you look at the movies and television, for instance, uh, they show the worst cases all the time. They don't ever show the mild cases. There's, there are mild cases in which sometimes the progression is slowed for whatever reason. I have to think it's slowed because of the interaction with other people is, 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 is supplying the person with some sense of autonomy and agency and things like that. There are what's called Alzheimer villages, one's in England and there's one in uh, I write about them in the uh, in the book, in Holland, where people live in communities of uh, uh, with Alzheimer's, and um, the medical staff is there, but they're not intrusive. They sort of let people decide what they want to do, how they like to spend their time, all that. Uh, here, in, I don't know in England, but perhaps as well, there's too much of a custodial approach to the thing. That you know, if they even make one mistake, then that suddenly they suffer for it. I had a patient who was uh, moved here to be with her son because she was having some early Alzheimer's, and she was in a uh, a unit, what we call a care unit. But it was you know she was free to come and go as she wished, so she would go go out shopping, things like that. One day she went out and she got lost. She couldn't quite figure out how to get back to the unit. So instead of asking somebody on the street, which would have been better, she called the unit and said, well, I can't get back. How do I get there? So they gave her the directions. So she got back and they moved her to a locked unit. So she couldn't no longer go out. I mean, now this is the kind of thing that is out of order. I mean, one particular incident, anybody can have that kind of thing happen. She didn't live in Washington. She lived out west. So it would be easy to get lost if you went more than one block or block in a different direction. And I thought we should also speak a little bit about um, kind of the pharmaceutical-based approach and, and, and potential Alzheimer's drugs um, in the near to midterm future. 
you, you seem to be reasonably optimistic that there might be a uh, drug that can at least assist with uh, Alzheimer's. And I know recently kind of there's just been this saga with the FDA uh, and approving the first Alzheimer's drug there. Um, do you think people should be holding their breath on that? Or how kind of optimistic do you think people should be on, on the pharmaceutical front? Well, there's, let's get it back to something we talked about earlier, Alex. I mean, about the, it may be a while before we have a cure, but bearing in mind that most cases come on in their 60s, 70s, 80s, if you find something that can delay the onset of the illness for, let's say, five years or certainly 10 years, it would be like a cure. So it's pretty much like a cure. People will die of some other, of something unrelated. So um, maybe we're preventing, you know, we're, we're focusing too much on the, quote, cure. But, we, you know, there's a lot of diseases we talked earlier we don't have a cure for. We just have treatments for them, medications that you can take. But you still have to keep taking the medicine. If you've got a bad blood pressure problem, I mean, you're going to have to keep taking antihypertensives for most of the rest of your life. You don't complain about that. You say, well, that's just a fact. So it could be that we'll come up with something that will help people, but they'll have to take it, uh, you know, every day of their life. And I wanted to ask a kind of final question on uh, hope and, and, and hopefulness. I think me and, and many other people often will feel worried when we begin to forget something or, or feel a little forgetful or, or have a kind of episode of, of forgetting a, an important thing. And I, I wanted to ask you whether you ever feel forgetful and, and, and whether that makes you worry and, and how much hope you think we should maybe have in, in the face of such a, on the face of it, terrifying uh, disease. Well, we all have episodes of not being able to recall something. I mean, it doesn't mean that something terrible is coming up. I use this term over here, uh, uh, was it called senior moments? I mean, where somebody just can't remember someone's name, but that gets back to the exercises that we talked about earlier. Uh, you can force yourself, you know, as Samuel Johnson said, the art of a memory is the art of attention. So you pay attention to things and you more than likely remember them. But, uh, you know, there are occasions when you just can't come up with a name, but I don't think you can continue to, uh, first of all, you can't assume that you're coming down with a dementia because of it. And secondly, it's part along the normal continuum, which is one of the themes of my book. There's this continuum that goes throughout life and where everybody is on this continuum somewhere. And you're going to have uh, episodes of being able to not remember something. I give this an example. Someone goes to a to a mall to get some bargain that they read about in the paper and they run in and make sure they still have it. And they do and they're excited about that and then they shop a little more and they come out and they can't remember where they bought the car. Well, that's not something to worry about. When they went there, they weren't thinking about parking the car. They were thinking about, can I get this item that was advertised in the paper as such a bargain? Now, if they came out and said, whoops, how'd I get here? Did I drive or did somebody uh, drop me off or take a bus? That'd be a little bit more worrisome because there'd be a lot more things that you would have had to forget. You would have had to forget being on the bus, sitting, maybe talking to somebody, looking out the window. You forgot all that. Whereas this other thing, the only thing you forgot was exactly where you put your car. That's a big difference. I, th I think that's uh, quite a reassuring note to, to many listeners to, to end on. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to thank you uh, for a fascinating conversation. Um, I'll, I'll just remind the audience again that the, the book is How to Prevent Dementia, An Expert's Guide to Long-Term Brain Health and is available now from your local bookshop. 
Uh, I'm Alex Wilkins, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.